0: Recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is Uncle Dan's Story Hour, featuring author and screenwriter Dan Wakefield, a master of the word, and host Si Bennett from Keep Indianapolis Beautiful. Uncle Dan's Story Hour is brought to you by Beer Brewery, with pints, growlers, and conversation at their tap room just west of Binford Boulevard on 65th Street, and faithful supporters like you. We're going to start the show tonight with a very powerful poem written and performed by Tasha Jones
1: We went from pyramids to plantations to projects to penitentiaries And you think America got love for me? We went from pyramids to plantations to projects to penitentiaries and you think America wanna see me free. I was born at 810, died, revived, and born again, with fight in my blood, storm and rain, war and sin. Then again I am the statistic that the government enlisted for prison with standardized testing repeated helpings of failure through public school systems. The projects projected only one would erect from city streets, swaps, meets generations of derelicts, let alone from a mother who birthed 13 and a mother's mother who bore the exact same thing. Let's not forget Prince Charming, whose abuse had substance. Longed for peace, but served a country that lacked justice. Point, infiltrated veins, molested blood, relaxed the complexity of pain, which left me logically to believe that if time heals, the incarceration system is doing a dang thing. Now, if we can bypass the root of plausible evolution, it would be safe to say that I was born in confusion, subjugated to the media's illusions of who I be which leads me to the point, rocks, water, and leaves. Follow me to the good book, where people are metaphors for trees and peace is found in the stillness of streams. Follow me to the good book, where the end is known in the beginning and the beginning is known in the end, and those who pain us most are either family or friends. Lead me beside the still waters and watch the branches on fertile trees fall like leaves because of the season. And there you will see my pop of ages rocking a congregation of these city streets with a solid rock of the coca leaf. May I borrow a line, please? My dad rocks. No, 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 really. My dad rocks. No, 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 really. My dad rocks. Sometimes in his weed. Sometimes he melts it, but it makes his arms bleed. Beep, beep, beep. Reverse what you heard, the natural herb can no longer satisfy the need. Cocaine baptized the weed and the audacity of hope trying to make my pop believe he could stop. Cain killed Abel. Now what about that verse was forgot? Watch how the system depicts the second hand when you hear the tick of a time bomb stuck in a pit of a habit trying to quit. This is the last time. Baby, I'll be there, I won't forget. This is the last time, darling, I sold the ring for a hit. This is the last time, mama, I sold the TV. Shh. This is the last time. God help him, he's sick. No one knows who's in control depending on the stroll, the rhythm, the catch, the taste, the smack, the feel, the look, the taste. See what the childhood remembers. The wound of the past is brought to the present figure. The man has become the, the preacher has turned into a pimp. Black Panther has been infiltrated by the government. The sun fell off his axis, trying to orbit, traveling 135 miles per second, and still falling. And we, him, harm with prison. I wish they could privatize the addiction, then we can rehabilitate the illness when it duplicates in form of cellmates. Are you listening? Water, rocks leaves, drowns the minds of insecurities, bathe the cheek, wash the feet, weep in the garden of Gethsemane. Can I get a witness? Well, let me hear you speak. Because if you don't cry out, then the rocks will cry out, and I don't want no rocks crying out for me. If you don't cry out, then the rocks will cry out, and I don't want any rocks crying out for me. We went from pyramids to plantations, to projects, to penitentiaries. And you think America got love for me. Thank you.
2: That's really great and uh, I first heard uh, Tasha at a poetry reading that Karen Kovacek, uh organized and uh, who thinks very highly of the poem. And Karen is uh, not only a professor of English at IUPUI, she's a former poet, poet laureate. laureate of Absolutely. Indiana. And uh, this was her comment. (coughs) This was her comment on Tasha's poem that you heard uh, just now. For all who believe we're living in a post racial society, Tasha Jones' Pyramid Plantations Projects Penitentiary offers a bracing corrective. African-Americans descended from the great builders of the pyramids, came largely to this country as slaves to work the plantations of our nation's founders. Ms. Jones remind us that despite the noble rhetoric of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, the freedom promised in those documents was not available to all. And a system of racial oppression has been in place ever since. Through Jim Crow, racial covenants, and housing discrimination, profiling, and police violence. And the entire prison industrial complex. As Tanasi Coates has observed, until we accept our collective biography and its consequences, we cannot be fully free. Tasha's poem challenges us to live in the truth. And I thank you, Karen, for that great, incisive commentary. And I want to tell you that Tasha is not only a powerful poet, but a powerful teacher. And I know because I have twice been to her class and... uh, It's really a highly disciplined, intelligent, uh, very impressive class of 8th grade boys. And I know that, Tasha, one thing you teach that I'd like you to tell about, it's not usually in the curriculum, but it's very important that you teach your 8th grade boys how to be safe.
1: I do. Uh, I teach a, a group of uh, young men that we like to call geniuses and gentlemen. And I think sometimes attached to uh, African American males, we don't hear that type of G. You know, we hear gangster, or you know, uh, another word. But the, the scholars that I teach and uh, I love are gentlemen first and geniuses as well. And so those are the G's that we we try to. Um, project, not only in our academia and our intellect, but also in our actions. And so when you teach and work in the inner city, you're mistaken quite frequently because of perception, because of history, because of outward appearance or whatever else. There is a lesson, not only from school teachers, but from parents for males of color. And so we teach how to speak when spoken to. We teach how to say no, sir, and yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. We teach to follow instructions implicitly. We teach how to remain calm. We teach to protect yourself, to never be in groups more than two. Try not to walk in a cluster. Try not to be in a cluster or a ride in a cluster because that can be mistaken for not a a starting lineup for a basketball team, but for a game. And it's something that mothers have to grapple with on an occasion, or not even on occasion, but on a daily basis. And especially mothers of black children are Latino children, and even more so with black boys and Latino boys. And so we teach those basic instructions of you, you answer what you are asked, and you remain calm at all times and your hands are in a place where they can see. And you are not aggressive. And your language, your body language is not aggressive. And that You are a gentleman first and a a genius. And you can move scholarly at all times. Yeah.
2: Let me ask also, I know that our education system often usually, I think, leaves out the history of black Americans. Are you able to teach that? Do you have books or, or how do you teach the boys of their own heritage.
1: Right. I, I think Indiana is on to something. Uh, it took us a long time. If Gary Holland is in the room, Gary Holland was one of the persons who were were the person who made sure that Indiana now has to teach ethnic studies in high schools, right? So it is it's a requirement in high schools now. Before then it was not a requirement. As it as an educator, statistically I have found both in the high school and in the in the middle school, that persons who learn from a Ethnic within the ethnic confines tend to not not only just of African American culture, but ethnicity as a whole. Right, you do not subtract yourself when you're teaching that, but you do include other cultures as well. And everybody that is in the room learns, and their test scores end up going up. Their behaviors uh, seem to be modified a- as well. I mean. Modified in the sense of we don't have any behavior problems. And more so, the the interest in learning becomes greater. And so that's what I've seen. And I've used my statistics to help with passing that bill. I first taught at a public high school in Indianapolis. And I taught scholars who were first having problems passing the end of code assessment. And I, I was privileged enough with my principals to be able to change the curriculum, to adapt it to a more cultural acceptable uh, curriculum. And what we found after a year of doing that 16, 16 weeks of uh, accelerated learning that the test scores, we were up 20% over the natural national average, the test scores shot up 20% over the national average. Um, and then I tested it again, going into an all black school teaching them about uh, Latino history uh, Native American history teaching not only what we have to learn with European history but also adding um, African- American history Latino Indian as well as um, Asian history and the same thing we we led the county in last year with I step scores and so uh, that group of boys levy led the eighth grade county with I step and we remain an a school so you know it works
2: yeah yeah, I was very impressed in your class when we were discussing things and they didn't call out or they didn't they didn't even raise their hands. They had signals of like what it meant to agree or disagree or have a question to ask. It was uh, very impressive. I, I wonder if you would tell about the time that you were a teenager and you and your dad were pulled over by the police, what happened then?
1: Right. At the time, I was attending a church way out north, and um, the parishioners were looking for ways to help the community. And so my father and I went on uh, a ride with the parishioners so they can figure out what was happening in in certain areas, but they were unfamiliar with the area. Uh, The parishioners, myself, my father, um, who was here, we were taking them on a journey through 25th in college, 22nd, 19th in that area, maybe 22nd in college. Even now, and if you go down to 22nd in college, I believe there is a, a right there on the corner, there is a four south sign or four lease sign, but there's probably like 12 bullet holes in that, in that area, right, in, in, in that building. However, the area itself is is upcoming, right? There's a, a new bar that's right across the street coming. There's a grocery store right around the corner, and so you can see that there are changes in the in the neighborhood. However, we were driving along and we got pulled over. Uh, the police pulled us over and wanted to know why two Caucasian men <laughs> were carrying two African Americans, one female and one black, and. Perhaps maybe I was the prostitute, <laughs> and I, I said me. <laughs> and so I, um, it was one of those things where I teach my students how to inquire, and that is my uh, modality. That's how I learn. Right? It's hard for me to understand if I don't ask questions. And so I began to ask questions, and he began to get hostile. And you know the parishioners chimed in and and told what we were doing why we were there they uh, showed their identification and it was over it was over just that quick and then the police officer said as we were preparing to leave while looking at me don't be a hero right this kid is just a mistake mistake and i asked if it were really and then what does that comment mean really? Don't be a hero. I mean like, I should not tell of my experience, but how many of these things happen on a daily basis? How many, how many people like myself or athletes or tennis players or students go through this on a daily basis? And uh, it was just an eye-opening experience. It, it taught me how to really trust the higher belief or the higher faith that I, I, I attest to. And it's really a test of faith and a test of love of all people, right? And uh, beyond that, it shows me how to be protected. And when I, I had to learn quickly how to back off of questions, right? So, I mean, you, sometimes you can ask one question too many, right? Yeah.
3: So, regarding sort of what you, uh, what you learned through that experience and what you teach your students in your classroom about how to be safe and how to address those situations. Was there anything for you growing up that was passed to you about how to interact with confrontations like that?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm blessed to have the parents that I have because my parents exposed me to opportunities and uh, people and, and expanded my mind through culture, through learning other people. And so understanding that I think that's what I tried to pass on to my scholars and I tried to take them to different places so they can experience that so they can experience different cultures and know how to address people who've come from different places than they have and I I try to make sure that all of us understand that our environment does not necessarily make up who we are. Right, it's just a, a component of where we are from, but not necessarily telling us where we have to stay or where we're going. And so, learning that in the process is, I think, essential. So I try to expose my my students to and my children to travel tr- to new cultures, new opportunities, new food. Right, and so they will learn mm-hmm. that that process in a more uh, s- simple turn. I-, I think. We just have to be a well-rounded people and can't be just confined to who, uh, one culture or one neighborhood or one area.
2: Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask, I know that uh, you went to Paris and uh, there's been a long history of black Americans going to France. R- really, I think beginning with, the, with Josephine Baker in the 1920s and uh, and going on through James Baldwin, who spent the last years of his life there. And so, I, as I remember, your, your parents encouraged you to go to Paris, Absolutely. and wh- what did they say about it? Right, I think
1: we first have to even go back a, li- a little bit further in regards to uh, the original Statue of Liberty that they sent over here for us, right? Then you know automatically that there's a different love affair for culture in regards to And so, well, well, at a very young age, uh, I had a librarian tell me that I should be a model. But not everybody thought that I was beautiful. And my parents did and um, always expressed that to me. And so uh, my parents just reminded me on a consistent basis that I had so many things to offer and that my beauty was not only from the outward appearance but also from the inward appearance. And um, as time progressed, I did get heavily into modeling. And I was not getting as many calls as I was. I mean, I didn't get many calls. And my parents said, I think you should go to Europe, go to Paris. They love. Um, you, and I went, and they did. they loved me, right, they loved me, and I learned how to love myself deeper, and I learned how to write in love, and I learned how to see color, not just my color but color period, right, even at the Louvre or even at the chance liaison there there the colors themselves are so beautiful and vibrant, and the blues were a different color of hues, you know there were. It, it was just uh, exciting and magic i i didn't want to leave and uh, it was hard to come back but well
2: yeah. the, the the most uh, recent Ameri- black american the writer ta coates, coates yeah. who wrote a national book award winner called between the, the world, world and I mean. me very powerful and he in that book, talked about taking his 12-year-old son to Paris because he felt there he could keep him more safe than he could in this country. Absolutely. Did you feel m- more, more? safe? Th- yeah.
1: Yeah, not only more safe, but free. I really felt free.
2: Yes. Enticing. <laughs> Thank you. Commentary. And, you know, our own... Uh, Favorite author here in Indiana and many parts of the world, Kurt Vonnegut, has always had some very interesting to say about this subject. We're lucky enough to have a brief recording of him speaking when he was interviewed for a CD called God Bless You, Mr. Vonnegut, where he speaks on the subject of color.
4: Teachers of children in the United States of America wrote this date on blackboards again and again and asked the children to memorize it with pride and joy. 1492. The teachers told the children that this was when their continent was discovered by human beings. Actually, millions of human beings were already living full and imaginative lives on the continent in 1492. That was simply the year in which sea pirates began to cheat and rob and kill them. They used human beings for machinery and even after slavery was eliminated because it was so embarrassing they and their descendants continued to think of ordinary human beings as machines the sea pirates were white the people who were already on the continent when the pirates arrived were copper colored when slavery was introduced onto the continent the slaves were black color was everything
2: i think a pretty insightful commentary and Vonnegut's way of looking beneath and across many things. Well, thank you, Tasha. And we have another distinguished guest who has written a book with the longest title I have yet seen, (laughs) and it's even longer than Mark Vonnegut's title, but uh, this title is Indiana Avenue, Life Along and Near the Avenue, and a Musical Journey from 1915 to 2015. Ragtime, blues, jazz, spiritual, bebop, doo-wop, Motown, opera, and hip-hop. And this was written by a fellow Shortridge Echo writer. Alita Hodge, who has had a very distinguished career, graduating from Stanford and uh, MBA at Indiana University and Kentucky University, among many other things. She uh, was a project manager at Eli Lilly, and she wrote health columns for the Indianapolis Star. So it's a pleasure to introduce Alita Hodge.
5: Thank you. Glad to be here.
2: And it was great to read your book about Indiana Avenue and and read things that I had never heard. And I have to confess that when I was growing up here in I was in Shortridge in the nineteen forties, school eighty, even before that, and There was only one thing I knew about Indiana Avenue. It was supposed to be a dangerous place. I didn't even know that there was music played there. I didn't know that it was internationally famous as a center for music and as as a place of some of the outstanding musicians, composers, and players in the world. And one of the amazing things to me, The the very first Broadway musical made up of black people was called Shuffle Along, and that was revived again. Uh, In 2015, there was a musical made called uh, The Making of Shuffle Along, and that uh, musical had 10 Tony nominations. And uh, the man who created this was a man from here named Noble Sissel. So, uh, and also, I, I bet a lot of you have heard the song, I'm Just Wild About Harry. <laughs> well, that's who wrote it, Noble Sissel, from Indianapolis and Indiana Avenue. And uh, he also wrote, and I bet you didn't know this, the Butler Fight Song. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Alita, could you say something about Noble and the beginning of this great heritage on Indiana Avenue?
5: Uh, Yes, he was a a preacher's kid. And he um, graduated from Butler. He uh, got involved in vaudeville at an early age. And so he became a composer and um, a singer. And uh, so he learned a lot about vaudeville and acting and how to be sensational and how to get a crowd uh, involved in um, presentations. And so um, he uh, teamed up with UB Blake, who was another uh, famous uh, producer. And they produced the first black Broadway success story. And it's a a funny story. about uh, well, some politics, somebody who's running for office, uh, politicians, and so one of the young stars of the show was Josephine Baker. That was her first per, uh, performance in a New York uh, musical, and then later. Um, Paul Robeson uh, joined the crew. And that was the first time that he had ever been on stage for anything. He was known for being an athlete at Rutgers University. So it, it made a lot of firsts in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah.
2: Well, and I, and when I was growing up, when I, when I was in school 80, <laughs> uh, I used to love a uh, singing group. Uh, how many of you heard of the Ink Spots? Well, did you know they were from Indianapolis? (laughs) I never did. And I certainly didn't know that they also wrote the big hit of the Depression, the hit song of the Depression, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? (laughs) So, uh, again, a lot of these things just haven't been known enough. Well, I think also a lot of people didn't know that Hoagy Carmichael got a lot of his early training and musical education on Indiana Avenue. And I, again, of the many millions of things I didn't know, I didn't know that during the heyday of Indiana Avenue that whites were not allowed to go in the clubs there, except as performers. So, you know, in our last show, we had my old friend David Amram um uh, from new york and when he was stationed at camp breckenridge in kentucky he came up to indiana avenue to play he's a white guy he played and he also in new york that was one of the only desegregated uh art forms was music was jazz he played with dizzy gillespie and a number of, of great jazz musicians and he was able to go up there but Alida, you had a very interesting thing in your book where some uh, wealthy guys from Fort Wayne came down to hear the music on well on Indiana Avenue, and there's Stutz Bearcat, and that was the big. That was like a better than a Cadillac, and they weren't allowed to go in the club.
5: Right, right, yeah. A yeah. uh, big uh, tall, tall, well, colored uh, policeman stopped them. And they were ready to walk in the door and said, he told them, well, you can't come in here. And they said, well, why not? We've come all this way, and uh, we've got the money, and why won't you let us in? And he said, well, um, if I let you in, the owner of the club could lose his liquor license and the business. And so there was double discrimination enforced by the police.
6: Yeah. And so
5: so even though you had these world-renowned musicians that everybody wanted to hear, you had restrictions on who could hear them and where they could hear them. Now, if they wanted to go to a a white nightclub or a private party given by whites, then they could see them there. So these guys angrily sped off in their Stutz Bearcat, (laughs) which was also produced just a few blocks away on uh, Capitol and 10th Street, yeah.
2: Well, uh, two of the most famous uh, jazzmen in the 1950s and onward, and I met, uh, one of them, I met J.J. Johnson in New York City, and I was very, uh, very impressed to meet him and talk with him, and I knew he'd gone to Attic's, but I didn't know he played on Indiana Avenue, I didn't know anybody played on Indiana Avenue and also uh, even in a way more of an impact on music was Wes Montgomery, who yes. who his, his guitar compositions and styling and playing really revolutionized uh, jazz guitar, so again these are things that we ought to be proud of here. They're from Indianapolis and, uh, and we, a
3: lot of Butler graduates as well, among that uh, bunch. Are, uh, what was the school that became part of uh, Butler University? Oh, the
5: Jordan School of Music. Yeah, yeah, yeah many, many jazz performers um, went there. The list is too long. <laughs> you have to read the book.
2: <laughs> um, uh, And uh, the the one other thing in the kind of historical part of your book I wanted to mention because it was, it seemed to me to really explain a lot of of things that have happened and things happening since was the fact that uh, when a group of middle-class black people here wanted to start a nice community and, and build nice homes that they were they, they prevailed and did that, but they were, none of them were able to get a mortgage in Indiana.
5: Right, right. Uh, yes, this is the area around 64th then Grandview on the west side of town. And um, one of their the classmates from Attucks had acquired this land uh, from someone who previously had a farm there. And they decided that they would um, build a housing development and sell it to their friends who were mostly from addicts. And so, um, you know, they had all these plans and wanted to get mortgage and then they were denied in the state of Indiana and so my aunt and uncle had to um, get a mortgage from Colorado and they were both uh, government employees. She worked for the Internal Revenue Service and my uncle worked for Indianapolis Public Schools and had you know, sparkling credit record and he had served in the military. And so that neighborhood is still there and still thriving and so there were a lot of notable people who lived there. The uh, great-granddaughter of uh, Madam Walker, uh, the Bundles lived there uh, Dr. Clarence Lucas, a general practitioner, and just just a wonderful neighborhood over
3: there. Yeah, well, and there, there's so much to uh, so much rich history involved with attics that we know about. We have this wonderful museum downtown, um, but especially uh, you mentioned the military record of your uncle, was it? Uh, could you talk a little bit about the connection between Attucks and the uh, war effort, specifically with the Tuskegee Airmen?
5: There's a nice exhibit at the um, uh, Attucks Museum on the uh, 10th Street side of uh, the school, on the side where the Starbucks is. (laughs) And so um, Mr. Arthur Carter, he was one of, uh, I think there were about 11 guys who went to Attucks who became part of the... um, Tuskegee Airmen, and so this there's a nice exhibit of them in the uh, museum. And they also became civic leaders and business leaders in Indianapolis.
3: Yeah. Uh, Arthur Carter, even, Dan, I thought you would appreciate yeah. this. Arthur Carter was uh, a recipient of the Boy Scout Silver Beaver Award, ah. which is a, uh, yeah, a very well-respected award. But. Well,
2: I, I was an Eagle Scout, but I never became a silver beaver. That, uh. Just one other thing I'll add to that, that I, I got interested in that situation of the difficulty in mortgages, and I found out that uh, uh, black veterans didn't get all the advantages of the GI Bill during war, after World War II. What I learned was black veterans haven't been able to make use of the housing provisions of the GI Bill For the most part, banks generally wouldn't make loans for mortgages in black neighborhoods, and African Americans were excluded from the suburbs by a combination of uh, deed, covenants, and and unformed racism. In short, the GI Bill helped foster a long-term boom in white wealth, but did almost nothing to help blacks to build wealth. We are still living with the effects of that exclusion today and will be for a long time. So I think we've learned a lot in, in this and I, I, I wanna say that we present this as something for our education, for our to, ourselves to know and appreciate our own history and the challenges that come out of that. And uh, our great saxophone player, Sophie Fott, who I've often said is the soul of the show, will play uh, something that maybe uh, in in the future we can sing together, Uh, we'll be together again
6: i mm-hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: My friend John Meyer was, for many years, served with the Veterans Administration, and he was Director of Vocations and Rehabilitation for Disabled Veterans, and he now does noble work tremendous work for the American Legion in finding people, housing and, and helping them pay the rent when it's a little bit late and and working to make everybody's lives better. And John and I have talked a lot about the early days. Well, his days aren't as early as mine, uh, but uh, he went to school, high school at Lawrence Central, and I, I wanted to have him tell what he heard about Indiana Avenue in high school.
7: Thanks, Dan. As Dan said, I was born and raised in Indianapolis. Uh, went to Lawrence Central, and it was at Lawrence Central. I met the first person of color that I had a conversation with, uh, living a pretty sheltered existence out in the suburbs. Um, and I, had, Dan and I had talked about the fact that uh, when I was in high school, uh, a rite of passage was to take your car, go downtown at night, and drive up Indiana Avenue, and that would be a sign of bravery if you did that. Um,
2: Especially if you had the car windows open. Right, if you
7: had, because if you had, the, you probably would be had knives thrown at you and God knows what. Yeah. Was, yeah, yeah,
2: that was that was the legend. Yeah. And then when you were at Purdue, you met uh, a guy that you had some that were eyes opening.
7: Yes, exactly. Although I did, I did have one black friend at Lawrence Central, uh, a female, uh, and uh, I have Facebook friends with her, and I told her that my meeting her, first impressions being what they are, uh, gave me a Uh, an understanding of people of color that sticks with me today and I told her she should be happy about that because she helped a lot of people I think as Dan was saying uh, when I graduated from school I uh, was in a management training program with Indiana Bell and one of my fellow trainees was a black fella's name was Julian and uh, Julian and I became close friends uh, and we would have lunch together and uh, go out and have some beers after our training sessions and talked talked a lot about a lot of different things this was in 1967 late 67 early 68 and uh, one day julian said to me john you know we get together and we have these conversations and i feel kind of self-conscious because when we have these conversations Uh, I seem to always sort of steer them toward race. I said, oh, believe me, that's fine. I'm, you know, I'm learning a lot. And uh, and he said, well, you have to keep in mind that tomorrow, if you want to go save the whales, or tomorrow, if you want to go protest against the war in Vietnam, well, you can go ahead and do that. Tomorrow, I'm still going to be black. And... uh, that was my first instance of understanding what white privilege is all about. Because I had the privilege of doing just that. And he didn't. And uh, again, I never forgot that either.
2: Well, thank you, John. And we're going to have now here, uh, you've, you've actually done this workshop, but Pam Levins Hinkle of the Spirit and Place Festival in Indiana is going to tell us how she started a really meaningful workshop that's gonna be given here that's just be started out called the Charleston Syllabus. So I'd love to hear about what that is.
8: Sure, thanks, Dan. Uh, well, as you know, Spirit and Place is all about leveraging the power of the arts and humanities and religion to bring people together in conversation and to make our communities better and uh, after a successful uh, series of dialogues that we had in partnership with the Kepra Institute last year, um, we got to thinking about what kinds of conversations can we continue in this community? What sorts of conversations are needed? And in 2016, a book came out called The Charleston Syllabus and The Charleston Syllabus um, began first as an online compendium of uh, articles about race, racism, and uh, racial violence in the U.S. And it was a response to um, the shooting of nine people at Emanuel AME Church by Dylan Roof. And the narrative that followed that terrorist act brought recognition that we, we weren't well informed about our own history and our own hi- here in the U.S., and several scholars of African American history put together this online compendium. And uh, they knew how to use social media. And they uh, put it up on, on Twitter as hashtag Charleston Syllabus. And it went viral immediately so now there is a a fantastic book that's a curated version of that and so through an opportunity presented to us by indiana humanities a grant opportunity uh, we decided to create a program called powerful conversations on race because we really don't have too many opportunities in our community just to sit across the table or in a circle from one another to share stories. And so uh, the program that John participated in, and also Cindy, uh, we have trained 24 facilitators in uh, a very specific technique that's called the Civic Reflection Dialogue Model, which is really um, simply a strategy for using humanities-based texts or an art object or song lyrics as a way to help us share stories and get at underlying uh, beliefs and assumptions that we have in conversation with one another So this is going to be a series of conversations that will launch in late August
2: and and as I understand it won't just be uh, A workshop thing where you have to go for one weekend And so it'll be ongoing and you can drop in on it or continue or come back or whatever
8: That's exactly okay. right. We, we designed it so people can experience it and um, however they wish to. So some people may wish to start the book and come back each time and progress through the book and discussion, while other folks might like just to drop in, or come in and out of it, and so people can access it on their own terms that way.
2: And its, it's not, I, un, I think I understand that it's not a curriculum or a teaching doing where you're trying to teach somebody something or have them think a different way. You're just trying to engage in con- have them have conversations with the other race that they haven't had before
8: that's exactly right we are simply facilitating the conversation we're not we're not teaching there's no uh, you know although the book is called the charleston syllabus we don't actually have a syllabus that we're walking people through this is simply a collection of essays and speeches and song lyrics um and historical documents and a whole range of things that are designed to to provoke conversation among people. Yeah,
2: that's great. And how how will people know uh, when they begin and where they are and all that? Uh,
8: in early August, we'll announce the specifics for that, and uh, folks can go to our website, which is spiritandplace.org, and that's with the word and spelled out. So spirit a n d place.org.
2: Great. That's great. Well, I had the privilege of being in on the, the first spirit and place conversation with Kurt Vonnegut and John Updike, And I know that Vonnegut would be very happy to know about this. And he wrote very often and powerfully about these issues. So that's especially, uh, especially great for our community. And Cindy Booth, uh, tell us about Child Advocates and what your role is in this.
9: So I'm director at Child Advocates, for the CASA Court Appointed Special Advocate Program in Indianapolis, and we represent all the children who have been victims of abuse and neglect and are brought into the child welfare system. And we do that with staff, um, social workers, and community volunteers.
2: And you, I, well, I did, uh, John and I did a workshop called Undoing Racism. And that that's a different kind of workshop because it was giving people informa- historical information. It was not so much a discussion as a teaching thing. It was very valuable. But I found that one of the things that was uh, interesting to me in that course, which was over a weekend, there were about 40 people in the course and It was the first time in my life I had ever been in a room where it was pretty evenly divided in races. There were about 20 black people and 20 white people, and there was a great learning experience just for that. And I was thinking, you know, I've lived all over. I've lived in New York and Los Angeles and Miami, and I've never been in that room before. So that was was quite, powerful to me.
9: I'm glad you had that experience. We began that work in Undoing Racism about seven years ago um, when we looked at the disproportionate percentage of African-American children in the child welfare system. And we said, if we are the voice of the children in that system, shouldn't we look at every aspect of their lives? And that, of course, included looking at race and we began to hear people talking about uh, both national organizations and individuals recommending this um, workshop called Undoing Racism from the People's Institute, headquartered in uh, New Orleans. And I would say it's a two-day workshop where both blacks and whites will have aha moments and will learn something about race in America and institutionalize racism. And so it has um, improved our advocacy for children. We have a study on our website childadvocates.net that shows the correlation of improved advocacy and decision making on behalf of the people who speak up for children. And we now have many people from the community coming and I invite everyone to come to one of the workshops that we have because it is still grant funded so therefore it is free. And uh, I think whether it's the activity on why are people poor or the activity on what do you like about being black, what do you like about being white, you will have, some interesting discussions in a a really good circle
2: yeah well i know uh i i saw a documentary about the workshop where will that be shown
9: it's going to be shown our documentary called child advocates undoing racism talks about our story of why we did this workshop and it follows four people going through the workshop it's quite interesting i think Um, and i think it's going to be shown on wtiu first and then wfyi
2: oh great in the fall great I think that it, it's it, it's especially valuable. And how how do people know about it? Is there a website? How do they find out? Yes,
9: yeah, so you can see the dates that when, uh, for our next workshops on childadvocates.net. We have one workshop. We basically are doing them once a month. So I think the yeah. next one will be in August and September, yeah. the third yeah. week of September, yeah. and so on, but on our website.
2: And I think a lot of people Don't really know what child advocates do. Could you tell us a little about that?
9: So we train community volunteers to go out and visit children wherever they're placed, and often they're placed with relatives if they're safe and appropriate. Um, They may be placed still in the hospital, depending on how they've uh, come out of being abused and neglected. And um, we go out and visit them and ask questions about how they're doing and uh, talk to their teachers, because that often tells us how they're doing talk to their caregivers, their therapists, all of that. And we bring all of that back, whether it's a volunteer from the community or a staff person, to a, the judge in a report so that the judge can make more informed decisions about that child's life.
3: Well, it's, it seems to me that uh, something essential that's being done through this Undoing Racism program with child advocates and what will be done with the Charleston syllabus through Spirit in Place is all about facilitating this conversation. And I think that it's, it's something that the Charleston syllabus, specifically, as it you know kind of was born of this hashtag Charleston syllabus, it's democratizing this the uh, resource collection uh, for all of us to be able to have to go into conversations like this informed. But it's having those conversations that can really start to enact change. So, can you talk a little bit, uh, both of you, I guess, talk a little bit about how um, what sort of tools people will be able to walk away from this. From your programs with uh, to be able to continue this these conversations
9: well i'd say from the undoing racism workshop um it really gave us a common definition of race and racism through that two day workshop we developed a definition within the workshop and what it gave to our workers at child advocates is a common language to talk about issues of race and racism as they affect the children that we have the responsibility to represent so it was invaluable to us and um I'll let you speak about that.
8: Sure, for the powerful conversations on race, you know, we're not planning those conversations to give people tools, except that the very act of sitting in conversation with one another, I think helps break down some of the fear that many of us have about talking about a difficult subject. And I, in this time, it seems to me there are many people uh, recognize Uh, the challenge that we have around race and racism in this country, but we don't know what to do about it, and we're afraid to talk about it. So we're hoping that through this process, through reading the Charleston syllabus, that our, our own knowledge base and understanding of history will be expanded, but that also we'll be able then to not be fearful about being in dialogue with one another about these these issues. And the world gets changed one story at a time. I mean, it's when we share our stories with one another that our eyes get opened. So these facilitated dialogues are space for us to listen to other people's experiences and their own stories and their own understanding that's provoked by the readings in the
2: book. Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud that Indianapolis is doing this, is, is making these uh, things available. And uh, I've been reading a lot of James Baldwin again recently and really one of the shocking things is the things he said in 1964 about the difficulties of this society with race, almost all of them are true today. But one thing that speaks to the work you're doing and I wanted to read that Baldwin said, because it seems so pertinent to the work you're doing. He said, everything now we must assure is in our hands. We have no right to assume otherwise. If we, the conscious blacks, the few conscious whites, like lovers, insist on and create the consciousness of the others, if we do not falter in our duty now, we may be able, handful that we are, to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country. That, that, that's such a great concept to me, the idea of achieving this country, and that's what you guys are helping to foster, so I really thank you very much. Also, I would like like for Tasha to close with a reading of one of our great Indianapolis poets, a brief poem by Mari Evans. Tasha?
1: This is a verse from the poem, Alabama Landscape by Mari Evans. Black man running through the ageless sun and shadow, History repeated past all logic. Who is it bides the time and why? And for how long? Mari Evans, Alabama Landscape.
0: Dan's story hour was recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana. It was made possible in part by the amazing beer brewery and faithful listeners like you. Thank you for your support on this journey. Special thanks to writer Uncle Dan Wakefield, host Cy Bennett from Keep Indianapolis Beautiful, powerful guests Tasha Jones, Alita Hodge, John Myers, Pam Blivens Hinkle, and Cynthia Booth. Saxophonist Sophie Fott, creative consultant and senior lecturer at indiana university and writer producers michael fairwechter and pat chastain and many thanks to jim dolly and leslie settle and the fantastic staff at the legendary red key tavern thanks ali o'hara for working the front door you're a wonderful person our amazing recording engineer for this episode was the masterful steve mcquery our graphic designer is the extremely talented sarah bushman our production manager is the very skilled matt pelzer the WFYI program director is the wonderful Roxana Caldwell. Uncle Dan's story hour was created by Michael Therwechter and Uncle Dan Wakefield. Thanks for listening, everyone.